This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Sister Joan Chittister. Sister Joan is one of the most influential religious and social leaders of our time. And quite honestly, it's been several years now that I've been wanting her to be a guest on Insights at the Edge, and I'm so happy that it's happening right now. For more than 50 years, she has passionately advocated on behalf of peace, human rights, women's issues, and church renewal. She is a much sought-after speaker, counselor, and clear voice that bridges across all religions. She's also a best-selling author of more than 50 books, hundreds of articles, and an online column for the National Catholic Reporter. Sister Joan is a member of the Benedictine Sisters of Erie, Pennsylvania. She's also executive director of Bennett Vision and the founder and animator of Monasteries of the Heart, a web-based movement sharing Benedictine spirituality with contemporary seekers. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Sister Joan and I spoke about the relationship between faith and doubt. We also talked about the importance of asking the right questions and what are the right questions. We talked about seeing the world as God sees the world and what this asks of us. We also talked about growing older gracefully the signs of spiritual maturity, and how Sister Joan feels at 81 years of age about what she calls the last great adventure, dying. Here's my conversation with someone I truly admire, Sister Joan Chittister. Sister Joan, it is my great honor and delight to be able to have this chance to have a conversation with you. Thank you so much for making the time for this. We've waited a long time for this one, and I just know it's going to be just exactly uh, as, as, uh, as human as we want it to be. Now, right here at the beginning, as I was getting excited about this chance to speak with you, I said to a friend of mine yesterday... Tomorrow, I'm going to get to speak to a real woman of faith. And how rare that is in my experience, unfortunately rare. And I wanted to start right on that question of being a person of faith. And if you identify with that label, and if so, what it might mean to you. Oh, I do identify. I, I, I couldn't qualify that. It's, it's, been, it's been the center and, and um, uh, the image and um, the true north of my whole life, uh, literally my whole life, ever since I was a youngster. Uh, for instance, I, I, I knew at a very early age, at a very, very early age, that I wanted to be a sister. And I knew after I entered that the immersion in the gospel was a call to me. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't so much a study or an imitation. It was a call. I saw something going on that, that was different than the world in which I lived. And yet I, I, I knew was, was the, that that this this whole notion of uh, the Jesus story was uh, my call to a pattern of life, and so everything everything that I do 
everything that I do is through that filter. So yes, I you must you must say it's um, it, it it comes out of faith. It doesn't come out of anything else. And then tell me, faith in what? What does faith actually mean to you? Well, what it what it means to me is is the notion of of uh, the fulfillment of life that somehow or other my life doesn't compartmentalize. There's not a public me and a private me or a professional me and a not professional me. All of my life is is directed uh, to that call out of that that um, perspective. Uh, when I when I meet a person, I, I know instantly that uh, that that this this person is gift, and I know it's gift because the scripture tells me that everybody's gift. The Canaanite woman is gift. The Roman soldier is gift. The child is gift. So I, somehow or other, that that Jesus story has has colors, uh, filters. Uh, everything in life, the way I judge it and the way I feel I must respond to it. Now, one of the things, Sister Joan, that I love about your writing is the embrace of paradox. You wrote a book on embracing contradictions. And one of the things you write about is that our doubts can be part of our faith. And I wanted to talk about that. You know, one nickname someone once had for me was Doubting Tamis. You're always doubting, doubting. What do you see as the role of doubt in our faith? Well, I'll tell you, uh, there, uh, there was a sister in our community some years ago. She's died since. She's probably one of the wisest people that I ever knew, and also one of the funniest at the same time. So when she talked, when she said anything serious, I listened in a special way. And she said to me one day, you realize, of course, that the uh, deeper you go into the spiritual life, the more careful you have to be. I said, what does that mean? She said, well, for instance, you have to watch what you pray for. And I said, I don't get it, Lois. I, I don't get what you're saying. And she said, well, look, if you're going to pray for faith, hope, and love all your life, and, and you're going to pray for faith, you have to understand then that you will struggle without. If, if you're going to pay, uh, pray for hope, you, you realize, of course, that that means that you will know despairs. And if you're going to pray for love, you have to realize that somehow or other, you will come to see the parts of life that are not loving and must be loved. So this this notion that doubt is a stepping stone to a deeper faith, it's so easy. When we were kids, you know, what they gave us was the catechism. Baltimore Catechism 3, who made you? God made me. Why did God make you? God made you to know him and love him and serve in this world and in the next. Well, those were easy answers. They were the answers. I don't say that they weren't right, but they were not of the essence of the of the impact of it. They they lack the meaning. Only only when you when you move from one level of the spiritual life to another, uh, or when you're letting go and letting go and letting go of all the certainties you've had because now nothing is certain, do you realize that only the call to doubt and only the journey through doubt brings you to a, a rock-solid faith? In the end, uh, as paradoxical as life is, you have learned over and over and over again because of, your, of, of what you doubt in the present, that in the end, uh, as we work our way through it, there is it, it is it is a rich field and it promises us both personal gifts and personal perspective in a way that we couldn't get them under any other conditions. That doubt, doubt is is the leader of the spiritual life. I'm curious to know in your own experience, Sister Joan, in a wrestling with doubt that you've had and how you made your way through it what that was actually like for you. If you could give us an example. 
I yes, um, I I can um, I can remember. Well, let's put it this way: I I um, uh, con- contracted polio at the age of sixteen, and the 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 diagnosis was the worst you could get. This young woman will never walk, and she has to learn to accept that. Uh, the doctors, why I was so intent on uh, on doing everything that I had to do to 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 get life right again, and uh, nobody, no professional in the field at that time, it it looked as if the paralysis was simply total and uh, and would be um, permanent. And I can remember coming to a, a very dark place, even though I was only 16 at that time. And uh, somehow or other, people, people saying to me, well, well, pray for a miracle. I was finding it very difficult. To, that, that just seemed audacious to me, to pray for a miracle. There was something I wasn't doing, something that, that had to be uh, considered in my life. Well, it took four long years before we began to, to, to realize that there was any life left, if, if not in the nerves that were damaged, in the nerves that were compensating. And I began to realize that this whole notion of, of going through the process that life had handed me was... Um, a, a more important part of not just my physical health, but my emotional health as well, that, that uh, being able to deal with the darkness and the doubt of the goodness of life and, and the doubt that somehow or other um, I, I was not being blessed, that God was not answering everybody's prayers only by coming through that, little by little by little, did I really come to know uh, the God who says in Scripture, uh, I wish you well, not woe. Every single thing I had to go through to get well uh, was wellness for me. I learned an awful lot. I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about other people. I learned that you could make changes in life and not die. I learned that what you planned wasn't necessarily the best thing for you. And that somehow or other, the grace was in everything, not just in what I would call good or others would call great, or even what you would call health. I became healthy in so many ways that weren't physical. And when I, the older I got and looked back on that period, the more I realized how important that dark, doubting period was to the development of the rest of me and a, a, a faith that lies in the notion that in the end, all will be well and not woe. Sister Joan, as I said in the beginning, I feel so lucky to have this chance to talk to you. And so I want to ask you the questions that are the most burning questions in my heart. I want to make the best use of our time together. And one of the things I feel about you and from all of your writing is a kind of, these are my words, a fiery purity. And what I'm curious about is if you feel there's been a cost, you've had to pay a certain kind of price for this fiery purity. And if so, what is that cost? Did you say a fire and purity? A fiery, fiery purity. Yeah, yeah, or a fiery, right, that's it, that's, that's the word. Um, yes, uh, yeah, you do pay, yeah, you pay, a, you pay a price. Because what happens when you get to the center of anything, for instance, something very public, uh, we were going through uh, the Vietnam War, right? And I was a young woman in grad school, and um, the country was highly polarized about was the war worthwhile? And, and how proud we should be or how shaken we should be. 
uh, I, I came to the conclusion that I really could not, I could not be part of that uh, uh, political uh, struggle whatsoever. That the fact of the matter was that that uh, n- not only was war wrong, uh, given the fact that in this day and age, uh, we have no such thing as a non-combatant now. We're wiping out women and children at great rate. We're taking homes, not not military installations or oil fields. We're we're just uh, covering the earth with with um, uh, sand and 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 explosives. It's 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 a pathetic thing. And I had to realize that I would begin to speak of uh, about peace, meaning not just. Uh, some sort of, of um, uh, hypocritical uh, uh, kindness, but that I had I had to keep pointing out that war solves nothing, that war uh, is is destructive, that nobody wins a war, nobody, not even the people who think they come out of it on top, and to begin to speak peace in a country that puts more money into destruction than we do human development, uh, it brought a lot of criticism, a lot, a lot of, of public um, uh, feedback. And somehow or other, uh, I, I could not avoid it. I just was not capable of uh, mollifying or um, pretending that I understood just for everybody else's sake, I no matter who disagreed about what, I had to stand where I was. Now that wasn't easy. It's not easy for me. I'm um, I'm a, I, I love people. I love parties. I, I love ideas. I love excitement. And to find myself on the wrong side of an American question. Uh, took a lot, took a lot out of me, put a lot into me, and did indeed purify uh, a lot of the issues. I stopped talking as the years went by. I stopped counting cruise missiles and uh, atomic throw weight and just realized that I didn't care if we were using sticks and stones. The fact of the matter is that this was a a worthless, useless, and sinful way to go about a political system. Now, this brings me to another question. When I consider how much you've spoken out in your life, and I would say that you're someone who seems to stand in your truth and live on purpose, what I notice is I get inspired by that in a certain kind of boldness, if you will, be bold. And yet I know as part of the Benedictine creed, there's a high value on humility, on humbleness. And I know in my own life, this challenge between balancing what I perceive as a desire to be humble, kind of behind the scenes, but yet also a call to be bold. So I wonder if you can speak to that. Well, you mean to humility itself? Yes, I, it's a it's a topic that I love. I, uh, it's not an American uh, topic. Uh, we we have been taught over the years it's, this whole notion of rugged individualism, for instance, the pioneer spirit. Everything about it is wonderful. I I don't have any problem with any of that. But we in our attempt to teach our children to be self-reliant, to stand up, to be courageous, to be leaders, to do their best, to make as much money as they can, to get as much power as they can, to um, be as independent and uh, in control of their own lives as they can. Uh, We've we've, uh, deprived them of this whole notion of the growth of the human community that comes from the merger of individual gifts into common gifts. So this, we've also confused humility and humiliations. 
And uh, I can, you know, I always use the example of, of uh, teachers who would hang big red tongues around little kids' necks because they talked in school in those days. That didn't teach that child anything near humility. What is humility? Humility is knowing who I am. It is knowing that uh, what I am is all I am and that that the gifts I have are very limited and without merger with the gifts of everybody else, the gifts I have will, will be largely useless anyway. So this, this, there is a bridge between humility and community. It's what I know myself to be and what the way I respect what everybody else is. I don't have to suck up all the light in a room. I don't have to have all the gifts to be a great leader. Uh, I have always said uh, my community and, and the, the staff with which I work make me look a lot better than I am. It's the community gifts coming together and doing something for the common good outside themselves that's the real power. And that power comes from the humility to allow other people to have gifts greater than yours, or, or yours may be equal to theirs, but yours have no right to consume theirs. So it's this notion that enabling the human community as a community leads us then to greatness of country. If you want to be a great country, then you have to see that everybody on every level can A, live as a dignified human being because humility is truth. And the truth is that everybody has a right to dignity and to a, to a sense of self and to a sense of initiative and to a sense of equality with every other human being alive. And then the greatness that comes out of that leaves us, each of us satisfied with who we are, each of us respectful of who everybody else is, and all of us together amplifying the, the voice of the individual in such a way that it is, it changes, it transforms, it informs, it stretches the common good. It's a, it's a marvelous. It doesn't take anything away from us. It enables us to throw our gift into the center of humanity and see humanity become a better place because of it. Joan, I also want to ask you about questions. You called your spiritual memoir called to question, and I know that asking questions is really important to you. And here, here's what you said at a commencement speech, what you said to the graduates. What the world needs from you is the courage to ask the right questions without apology, without fear, and without end. So my first question is, what are the right questions we need to ask? I, I believe there is one uh, right question for every topic, and that's why. Why? Why do you do that? Well, we do it because we've always done it. Why have we always done it? Well, it's something we inherited. It's called culture. It's the way you go about things. Why do we go about them that way? Well, because uh, uh, we've always done it that way. Uh, why do we keep doing it that way? Do you see where it's going? It's, it's slicing uh, uh, an issue right back to the root of it. And when we can get to the root of it, then if it needs to be changed, you can change it. Those are the right questions. Where did this behavior come from? Uh, look, for instance, at uh, slavery uh, a couple hundred years ago and racism today. Why? Why do people have, have problems simply because somebody comes from a, another part of life, a, another place, another uh, ethnicity, another race? Why? What is that in us? And when we move it back there, it isn't, it isn't um, color that's our problem. It isn't ethnicity that's our problem. It's our problem lies in us. 
Why is the question that keeps us moving toward the right answers to the right issues? Now, that's very profound. I wonder within the Benedictine monastic tradition and all of the rules that you inherited and then operating within the Catholic Church, I can imagine that asking why might get you into trouble some of the time. Why this? Why this? I mean, I know in my own religious heritage, when I asked why a lot, I didn't get answers that satisfied me. Well, that you have to make a distinction about the kind of question you're asking and the kind of uh, answer you're getting. For instance, where, where Catholicism is concerned, uh, and a lot of other similar religions who take the same position about women. Uh, when, you, when you take the why question back to the, all the way back, you find out that the answers you've been given have been institutional ones. They, they aren't spiritual ones. They're not spiritual ones. I, when you hear this, I, I, uh, <laughs> I was invited uh, to a brunch yesterday morning by some wonderful people. And I was uh, talking about, we were all talking about the, the implications of the kind of stories that are in the press at this time about uh, uh, male-female relationships and harassment and, uh, and uh, sexual inappropriateness and all those things that, that uh, have now just exploded in the midst of us. We've all, you know, we know they're there, but I don't know, I certainly didn't realize that they were that rampant and, such, and so institutionalized. So I said to this very good man, I wanted to talk to, to, I wanted to ask a man directly, somebody that I saw as stolid and good and somebody I would respect. So I said to him, well, tell me something. What message did, now he, he, he's a man I'm sure who's in his late 60s, early 70s. What message did you get about women as a young man, as a boy, Growing up, what what or what did you take with you out of your boyhood and young adulthood uh, that that somehow or other helped you see the relationship between male and female? And he paused for a minute, but not very long. He said, "Well, when when I was little or young in grade school, um, you know." Uh, we just took it for granted that girls and boys were different. But then he said, as I got older and got into high school, and so I, I said to myself, well, we're not, we're not different. Uh, we have uh, the, the same urges and the same interests and the same ideas. And, and uh, I mean, what I, you know, I, I came to the conclusion that uh, Women, women were were as, as human as we. Uh, women were also human, but not quite as human as we were. Now that's a direct quote. That's the answer I got. That that's that's a quotation, not an interpretation. I I began to realize that uh, that that women were human, but not quite as human as we were. The male norm. Now, where did that come from? A lot of it, a lot of it came from uh, from uh, uh, religious teachings. The whole, the interpretation of uh, the role of men, because men wrote the scriptures and men wrote about the men of scripture, and where women uh, break in is certainly a sign of of the the divine inspiration behind scripture, because they wouldn't have been there at all otherwise. So when, when you begin to pick at and, and uh, deepen a subject, uh, then you begin to understand that you're, you're really dealing with two things. You're dealing with the law of God and the laws of the churches. Uh, you're dealing with, with uh, institutions and, uh, and, and with holiness. You're, you're dealing with the uh, nature of creation and, and the uh, relationship of God to that creation and you to that God. And, and you have to begin then to, to deal with how those relationships, uh, Jesus, who, who deals with women everywhere, scripture is very clear about the fact that uh, uh, 
it says, and and there there were there were women uh, with Jesus, and they were supporting him. Quote out of their own substance. I always say, do you, get, do you understand what's being said there? No women, no Jesus. These these were the people in in scripture who were subsidizing this work, who recognized him first, who followed him first, who were the first foundation of the church and of Jesus' communities. So it is a huge question, but it has two sides. One is institutional. One is um, the essence of creation and what it means to, to be um, human on the way to divinity or divine on the way to fullness of humanity. These, these uh, things, we now have a whole other body of information about this subject. Uh, it's called science. And uh, science will not teach you that women, yeah, women are human like men, but not quite as human. Not quite. So now you have a whole body of, of information that requires uh, uh, some rethinking, some spiritual rethinking about social issues. And it, is, it's, it starts uh, from, from the very beginning, and it certainly has a, a high point at the time of Galileo and Copernicus, and we're we're still in it, still trying to get this thing called creation right. And so we're beginning to understand that even animals have rights and that we cannot treat them as, uh, as, as d- disposable uh, items without feelings, without, without pain for our own sake. It's, it's all of a piece, Tammy. You can't take it a piece of you can't take it a piece at a time and generalize that little piece. Mm-hmm. You know, as part of this questioning process, Joan, you write about contemplation, and one of the things I uh, pulled this sentence out because I'd love for you to explain it. You write contemplation comes down to seeing the world as God sees the world. And I notice as you're talking about science, I can kind of, oh, that's how science sees the world. And I, I get that. But when I try to imagine an interior process where I could see the world as God sees the world, I notice I feel a little shaky. I, I don't know if I know what you mean by that. Oh, but that's the easy part, Tammy. When, when God looks at God's creation, God said, it's good. This is good. And we have made so much of it bad. And so we see people on the streets uh, of, of the world dying in front of our faces. Their babies, uh, nothing but ribs and big eyes and heavy heads. If I see the world as God sees the world, God knows that is not what God meant. That's not what God wants for that child. That's not what God wants for those people. That that is not God's will. I see the world uh, uh, as God sees the world means I see, I know inside me as a full human being what God's will is for all of us. And it's our responsibility we, to see that God's will comes to be. God, God did not complete creation. God created and left it to us. Those children are dying because we do nothing about it, because we allow it to happen. God sees that too. That's where your first question comes in again. It's how I act because of the faith I have in the will and nature and creation, a creative activity of God that requires what I do. Now, that's important to me, and that is contemplation. 
to, to walk the streets of my town and see those streets as God sees those streets. Does God look at this house and say, that's good? Does God look at this? these hungry children? We feed children. My community feeds children. Who, who we have, we have a, a soup kitchen for kids. A soup kitchen for kids. Because too many of the children in our city never eat three meals a day. And so we feed them before they go home. And when the reporters came to uh, cover the story of a soup kitchen for kids, they said to the sisters, um, do you mind if we talk to the kids? No, no, please do. So they said to this little girl, do you like it here? Oh, I like it a lot. What do you do here? Well, uh, we, we come and we, and, and, and we do our homework, and then we get to play in the gym. And then we come over and we get really good food. And the reporter said, well, that's lovely. Uh, did, uh, did you learn anything here? Uh, anything here surprised you? And the kid said, yeah. And he said, what was it? And she said, I was surprised. I didn't know you were supposed to eat three times a day. She was eight. She was eight years old, Tammy. She didn't know you were supposed to eat three times a day. What is God's will? What is contemplation? What, is, what does it mean to, to live your faith? To see the world through the filter of your faith? This is, this, this is not profound. This isn't high-level theology. This comes right out of the Ten Commandments. Uh, the, the action of God with God's people and the will of God for creation. It's, it's not difficult. Now, now, Sister Joan, I have to say that I actually think this is very profound. In reading your writing about caring for the poorest of the poor and being willing to feel being willing to feel the suffering of people all over the world. What I noticed was resistance, my own resistance to that and the resistance of many people I know. And you talked before about our individualism, this rugged American individualism. And in an interview with you, you talked about how so many of us now in the United States can't necessarily count on social security for our retirement, and we can't count on the healthcare system to provide for us. So we're so invested in our own economic security. I don't wanna be an old person who has to ask other people to take care of me, who's suddenly, you know, in my elder years, looking for a handout, I need to take care of myself. And so I don't take the feeling time to feel into the poorest of the poor and what I might be able to do for them because I'm too concerned about my own economic security. And I think a lot of people find themselves in a situation like that. So I wonder if you could, could speak to that problem in our time, which makes what you're saying, identifying in a feeling way with the poorest of the poor and other people in need, it makes it hard. It's not intuitively obvious. Yeah. Listen, thank you for that. And thank you for the way you phrased it, because I want to attach the answer to my response to it, uh, to something you said. You said what? I, you know, and I agree. <laughs> I agree with you uh, completely. Yes, uh, I'm looking at people. Uh, I, I live in the inner city, Erie, and I look out the window and uh, I look at the, at the four parts of our city, and I know that there are people in the wealthiest parts of our city who are exactly where, where you are. They, they have worked hard all their lives and they have a right to what they worked for. And they are uh, sure they come out of the rugged individualism motif of American history. And that's great. And it's worked for them. And, and they all they're trying to do is take care of themselves and their kids and their mortgages and their houses and their schools and everything that goes with it and to see that they are not a burden on society as their lives go by. That is all highly 
uh, commendable as far as I'm concerned. It's not that kind of individualism uh, that I would think is corrupt. The, it's when you, when you got to the semicolon, you said, I, I, you know, I am so busy doing this, trying to assure that I won't have to be taken care of, that I don't know what to do for them. Now, there are two ways to do for anything. And that is, uh, in, in, this, in this town, for instance, as it, in the north and the east, as it gets colder and colder, and you understand it better than I do in Colorado, I'm sure, and a lot of people will begin to collect old coats and gloves and hats and boots, and that's wonderful stuff, and it changes people's lives. It keeps them alive in, in the terrible weather we have. But there's another way to do that, frankly, is more lasting. And this is where you get in to the struggle between charity and justice. Charity sustain, uh, maintains people. And so we have a soup kitchen and we'll collect the blankets and the coats. That's, there's no doubt about that. But it's only justice that changes the situation so that we don't have eight-year-olds who have no idea that you're supposed to eat three times a day. Somehow or other, changing attitudes is as important as collecting coats, becoming part of the human conversation, pointing out that a minimum wage is not a living wage for too many people. Too many people in my neighborhood, they are working, Tammy. They're working harder than anybody I know in the other three parts of the city because they're working two and three part-time jobs because they get no benefits. And at the end of the of three time, three part-time jobs, they still don't have a living wage. Now there's something wrong with the way we're putting our, our mercantile world together. That you can have that much wealth in this country. But I can't see that this child's mother will have enough food stamps to feed her three times a day. Then I'll say at the end of the day, well, if they worked as hard as I'd have, they could have it too when there's no job to have. Do we have then no, no other kind of responsibility except to see day after day after day every single thing that we thought was becoming an American uh, gift to the world is now coming off the budget, coming, coming, coming down, um, the, the medical care coming down. If we want to know what to do, get into the conversation. Change the attitudes that think that, that, that starving somebody to death is the bright side of individualism. It's not. It's not. And it, and it says something about who we are if we allow this conversation to go on without us. It, uh, we are part of it. We're, we're not just part of the solution. We're part of the problem. And so as far as I'm concerned, that's, uh, that, that charity and justice struggle, one, one does not satisfy for the other. You have to have both and you have to have them in tandem so that the people that I'm, on, uh, that, that I'm looking at out this window right this minute uh, know there'll be heat in the house tonight and know that there will be three meals for their children tomorrow. And I know that neither is true. Hmm. I, I notice as you're talking, Sister Joan, in some ways it seems that charity is easier. It's easier to get my arms around. And when you're talking about being in the conversation for justice, I feel more uh, helpless around that. I feel like I'm having conversation. I'm not sure how effective I am. Well, we again, you see, come, now we come back to my questions. Who is left out of the, of the legislation that's being passed? Who will not profit from this? Who will be advantaged? That, those two questions have to be asked of every single thing we do uh, as, a, as, a, as a nation, as a people, uh, as citizens. Who is left out and who is being advantaged and why? Why is this group being left out? Why 
are these people being advantaged, but no one else is being advantaged. They're it all comes together. It's, it's not profound. It's a piece. Okay, another thing I wanted to talk to you about, Sister Joan, is how you've written 50 books in your life. And in studying up for this conversation, I learned that you have gone on these annual writing retreats for two or three months a year. I'm curious to know what kind of interior state do you put yourself in or do you enter so that you can write these gorgeous, inspiring books? Well, you're right. There is an interior state, and I thank you for asking this question because uh, sometimes, you know, when I when people ask me these questions and I tell you the truth, when I'm done, I say to myself, "Oh, you know, uh, that that certainly looks quite precious." The fact of the matter is that I don't know most writers who can write without silence. I I love I love to have writers talk about how they write because every one of them is different. And yet there's a common thread that I trace through all of them. And that is that need for concentrated quiet or total silence to do what? To go down inside yourself, to find your own truth about this question. I only wrote um, uh, The Dark and the Daylight because um, I began to realize that, you know, we sit around and we dream up the best all the time. And um, every one of them, every, every best sours someplace. So what is that saying? That there is no such thing as best? No, it's saying that we only have one eye to see what we think is best for us. And yet so often it's the worst part of our lives that bring the best out in them. Isn't that the truth? You know, uh, you, 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 the, the, the house burns down and you think you'll never recover. And you hear people later saying, the eh, best thing that ever happened to us is that all the stuff in the basement went. We hadn't looked at it for four years anyway. And we, we learned to live a different way. When we redid life, we didn't do it the way it was before. And it was good for us. Or I lost my job and uh, I, I found something that just to keep us alive, but it was so different. But I was home for supper every night and I had weekends. And all of a sudden we had a different family life. Those are the paradoxes of life. And so for me, this, this writing question is a question that uh, I can, I, I, I laugh about it. I, I say, you know, I, uh, I, I can write on, uh, a two-page essay in an elevator ride. That, that wouldn't be a difficult for me at all. But when I sit down to write a book, I have to be alone. I have to be out of my space. I have to be completely in orbit, totally unmoored. I don't write in our houses. I don't write in anything permanent. Um, I write where I am free to kind of move around. My soul moves around in, in, in orbit around me. And if it sounds true, no pun intended, uh, then it's true. And then I, then I can write it. That's the zone. The zone has to be quiet, has to be honest, and it has to have that. The question that I write on, I, I have to see it as meaningful for human development. Now, you said your soul moves around in orbit. I, I love that image. It's, it's sort of like you're out in the universe. Is that what it feels like? That's it. There you go. Yeah, the, the earth is turning in one direction and I'm right with it, but going the opposite way. <laughs> it's just, and, and my soul is loose and free. And, uh, and, and then the ideas follow it and it releases the ideas. And, and then I say, you know, that, that's, what, that's what creativity is about, isn't it? That's good. That's good. The soul creation is, a, you know, is, it's a... It's a biography of every human being. 
Sister Joan, you've written a, a recent book called The Gift of Years, Growing Older Gracefully. And we're having this conversation, and you're 81 years old. Is that correct? That's exactly correct. Yeah. And I'm wondering, are you experiencing certain diminishments with age? And how is that working for you? How are you making peace with that process? Well, it's interesting. You know, I, I've asked myself that question, actually, Tammy. And I suppose there's something about being a writer that kind of protects you from a bit of that. I mean, you're used to sitting. And, uh, and you're, you're no athlete, never were. And uh, you don't lift weights for a living. And you don't get up every morning and go to the office for, you know, uh, 10 hours a day or something like that. But having said that, uh, I've had a lot of, of physical problems all my life, you know, from the polio on and even before that. So um, the physical for me um, is not an obstacle. It's something to be lived through, uh, but it is a factor. And so it, it affects, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't walk very well. Uh, I walk well, but I can't walk far. I have only a certain number of footsteps in my life ever since the polio. And, and there, there have been lots of other elements as well. But uh, I work with what I have. For instance, I get up every morning and go straight to the pool and uh, have been accustomed to swimming a mile a day. Uh, right now, I'm, I've been out of the pool for too long and I, I did have a new, another surgery. And so I'm only doing about three quarters of a mile a day right now, but I'm still doing it. So I, I believe in, um, in, in, in pressing the, the physical uh, opportunity to, uh, to a sensible level uh, to do what you can do and, and do it very well. And then what you can't do, that's all right. Doesn't make any difference. It really doesn't make any difference. Uh, if, you, uh, if, if, you, if, you, if you have a hearing problem, uh, you read more. Uh, if you have a sight problem, you'll listen to other people more. Uh, it, it, there's a gift in every paradox. And, and it will develop you more than you ever imagined. I know that's a good answer, but it's my answer. Um, and I'm not greatly limited physically. And at, at, uh, at 81, um, they don't have marathons for us, but uh, if they did, I'd be interested. In, in my experience, not all elderly people I know would I consider spiritually wise or mature. But of course, some are. And I wonder, what do you think the signs are of something like the wisdom of elderhood or spiritual maturity? Oh, that's a wonderful question. And it's, I, I, that's a very basic question. Wisdom is the learnings distilled from experience. That's all it is. Wisdom is the learnings distilled from experience. And I believe in, in um, teaching people and telling people all the time, no matter what they describe to me, um, uh, what did you learn from that? And what happened to you because of that? And how did you see life after that? And how did it change your life? Those four issues out of, out of every major life experience or trauma. What did you learn from that? What did you begin to see from that? How did it change your life? Did it change your life? If so, in what way? Why not? Um, I, I find that that's of the essence. Uh, uh, it's of the essence to learn to ask those questions. It's of the essence uh, to, to uh, help other people ask those questions and to, uh, to yourself 
uh, recognize that it isn't it isn't so much what happens to you. It is what you learned from it, how you deal with it, uh, what what went on in life because uh, you went through death or loss or great conflict or physical problems. Everybody goes through something. doesn't make any difference. Everybody goes through something. Why? Because we're not finished. We have a lot to learn every day and we're not finished till we have learned it. So spiritual maturity then is, uh, is wisdom um, made real. And by that, I mean uh, spiritual maturity says, I am growing and I will grow. I must grow. I should grow. I must remember to keep on growing all the way to the grave. Um, right, right down to the last moment. You, you hear people talk about uh, people they've worked with in a final illness, and and the beauty that they saw in them, the strength that was there, the kindness, the gratitude, and you recognize that's all coming out of this this growth of of spiritual maturity that says, you know, this wherever I am. And whatever I'm doing is good for me at this moment, and I must make the best of it myself. Spiritual immaturity is expecting God the puppeteer, God the magician, God the great warrior, God the child's fantasy, the spiritually uh, infantile fantasy that we make God will somehow or other is either punishing me or testing me, or uh, uh, checking me out to see if I'm worth anything. That, that's, that's nonsense. It's just that spiritually immature. God gives us everything we need to be who we must be at every moment, and it's our responsibility to be it. Mm. God, God is with us to strengthen us and companion us and beckon us on. You're doing fine. I know it was hard for you, but, oh, you handled it so well. Now just keep coming. Don't hide. Don't, don't run away from this. Stay with this. Spiritual maturity says, the God who loves me and created me has given me everything I need to come to the fullness of myself and that uh, I, the maturity lies in taking responsibility for that growth. You know, Sister Joan, when you were talking to the graduates and you gave a commencement speech where you said it's so important to ask the right questions without end, and I noticed this idea of continuing to ask questions even as we enter our elder years, that really struck me because I think sometimes I think, oh, you know, Tammy, you're supposed to have lots of answers now. You've interviewed hundreds of people and been in the spiritual education business for all these decades. And yet I notice, yeah, sometimes I may feel like I have an insight, but I'm still always asking questions. I still have lots of questions. I wonder how you, what you think of that. Oh, I think it's wonderful. I think that's what's keeping you alive. I think it's what keeps all of us alive. It's when you stop asking the questions, when there's no new question for you and, and nothing that you'll exert yourself to, uh, to find out, not necessarily from a book, but from people that you've seen go through it or from people. There's a great monastic story about um, the disciples who, who, who say, uh, to someone in their midst, uh, I, I hear that that you, you are you are going to see the spiritual elder. Yes, I am. Uh, what does the spiritual elder? Uh, what 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 uh, rituals does the spiritual elder teach you that that are so important to you? And the disciple says, oh, the, the elder doesn't do any rituals at all." Well, then. What prayers does the elder teach you to say so that, so that you have a feeling of grace and goodness? Oh, the, the master has never given me a prayer at all. Well, then, 
what potions are you taking from the elder that give you a new spiritual strength? Oh, the, the master has never given me any kind of potion at all. Well, if you're not getting prayers and you're not getting rituals and you're not getting uh, potions, well, why do you go so far to sit with this spiritual elder for nothing? He said, to watch the spiritual holy one light the fire. Wisdom comes from, from choosing the right people to watch, to, 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 to grow from. It's part of that community thing, again. Benedictines are very, very strong about the, the maintaining all the levels of the community and teaching the younger people to speak up about their insights and teaching them as well to listen carefully to their elders, the people who have lit the fire before them. They know how to light the fire. And so learn from that. Learn from that and, and move your own life. And then you yourself will begin to distill the experiences of your life into something that not only, not only calms your own um, manner of living, but is a sign to the other. People begin to watch you light the fire. How does she do that? How does he live like that? How did they get through that tragedy? What, what did they do as a result of it? That's the mixing of all the wisdoms of the community into the strengthening of the community that is the family or the strengthening of the community that is the workforce or the strengthening of the community that's the city. It's, it's, bringing, it's bringing wisdom and spiritual maturity and this honest search for the serene life, the good life, the life that concentrates on what a, what a life is worth. That's those are the people we those are the people we look for. Those are the people we, we follow. Sister Joan, I just have one final question for you. A central question in my own spiritual quest for many, many years was looking at what happens when we die and feeling my own anxiety really about that and that fueling much of a spiritual search. And I'm wondering for you here at 81, with your own contemplation and reflection on that, what your views are about dying. Well, I don't have any anxiety about it, and I, and I know why, because life has been so good. I have no doubt that what's to come will be just as good. And, uh, do I fantasize about what's to come? No, that's, that's um, again, the, uh, the wag wrote once, first God created us and then we created God. And I think there's, there's a lot, lot of truth to that. Uh, I heard somebody else say, well, uh, you know, do, do you believe in God? And the person said, I don't know if I do or not. Uh, I said, well, well, what do you what do you believe in? He said, well, this this much I'm I'm, I'm pretty sure of. Either uh, there is a God, and that God who created us loves us, and there's nothing to worry about, or there isn't a God, and then there's nothing to worry about. So I, I am I am convinced that this this creation came out of love, and this movement to another stage in it will also come out of love. So no, I'm, I'm not anxious. I'm, I'm not anxious. I know it's coming soon. But um, I kind of, it's the last great adventure. And uh, either we'll go into eternal silence and the, uh, what Chardin what, uh, called the flow of life. Or, or there is somehow or other an eternal consciousness and we'll be in it and it will be of God. That's all I know. 
Sister Joan, for me in my life, you've been one of those elders that I've been watching light the fire. I've been reading your weekly email from the monastic way, and it has a, a grit and a realness and a call forward that always moves me. And I'm so happy to have had this chance to have this conversation with you. Thank you so, so much. So much. Well, it's so Thanks to you, Tammy. It's been a real conversation. You don't hear much like this uh, in our communication system anymore. So thank you for making that great gift uh, and, and allowing other people to honor their thinking too. God bless you. God it's bless you. Great. God bless you. I've been speaking with Sister Joan Chittister. She's the author of more than 50 books, including Radical Spirit, 12 Ways to Live a Free and Authentic Life, The Gift of Years, Growing Older Gracefully, and Between the Dark and Daylight, Embracing the Contradictions of Life. What a great joy to speak to such an elder who is a true person of faith. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey.